I mean, well, we have a long behind-the-scenes drama today, but basically they almost did it. But it is kind of shocking. <laughs> I'm really excited to learn more about this freaky little guy. Uh, <laughs> yes. He shoots just like his sick, twisted imagination <laughs> and love of dance and style. The thing that I was thinking while watching this movie is like, it is much more linear and like conventional than what his future work is going to be. But mm. I can also see how like watching it 30 years ago, having never seen a Baz Luhrmann movie, it would be like overwhelming and you would have no idea what was going on. For real. For real. Uh, well, fresh out the oven. It's Cinema Bums. I'm Emmett. And I'm Wade. And Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie and popular film franchises one each week to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we are beginning our brand new mini series. <laughs> what's it called? Oh, what's it called? <laughs> what are we going to call it? Oh, what are we um? Oh, crud. We had it. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Australia? Uh... Cinema plus bum? Wait, no, no, no. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, question. Do we always have bum in the title of the thing, or is sometimes we just, like, do some We don't joke? always. It's just, like, the easy... So, okay, okay. All right, well, cool. Okay. But I don't want another long one. All right, it won't be another After long After what is all this scream time doing to our children, I do not want another long one. All right, uh, that was over a year ago. <laughs> uh still hasn't recovered uh all right today we are beginning our brand new miniseries what's up baz covering every film directed what? by baz lerman we what will that even mean? spoil today's film strictly ballroom we will not spoil any future entries in the series wait how are you doing what about the Baz Batch? You suggested that one earlier. I thought that was good. Oh, okay. Today we are beginning our brand new miniseries, The Baz Batch, covering every film directed by Baz Luhrmann. We will fully spoil today's <laughs> film. to say the whole thing again. <laughs> Strictly ballroom. But I felt I was a little hot on the last one. Okay. But we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Wade, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Emmett. We're starting a new miniseries for the first time in what feels like several years. Webhead Summer is over. The Queen has died. Oh my and God. I'm trying to think of anything else notable that's happened since the last time we were on air. I'm feeling pretty good. How are you feeling, Emmett? You know, it's great. Wade, what's your previous experience with the acclaimed director, Baz Luhrmann? Um, I'm trying to think of what I saw first. I feel like it was either Gatsby or Romeo plus Juliet. I mm. saw both of those in high school around the time Gatsby came out. I didn't grow up with any of Baz's movies, but I watched that around there. And I think we'll talk more about this last week that like Romeo plus Juliet really like messed me up for a while. And then I, I feel like I've spent a few years of my life just trying to emulate that movie by being so into it. Yeah. And then I've, I watched Moulin Rouge a couple of years after. I've only seen that once, but I really liked it and saw Elvis this year when it came out. So this movie and Australia were the two I had never seen. I've always been a really big fan of his work. I know that it's controversial 
In fact, I know from getting guests for this series that some people have been like, oh, I don't like his stuff, which makes sense, I guess, because it's very bold, but it totally works for me. So I'm a big fan of his. Yeah. Emmett, what about you? What's your previous experience? I had seen, I think, Romeo plus Juliet first, maybe, but maybe it was Australia. Because I watched that movie when I was, like, in middle school, I think, and was just, like, swept away by it. I was like, whoa, this is awesome. Then I saw Romeo plus Juliet, definitely. I never saw the Great Gatsby that he did. Mm. And I think the preponderance of Gatsby-themed parties in college kind of, like, turned me off of ever wanting to see it. It just (laughs) had no, like, without any sort of feeling towards, like, Baz at all. Just, like, Mm -hmm. it just turned me off of it. And I like that book, all right. You know, it's like one of those ones you read in high school and you're like, oh, okay, that was, that was good. But I don't feel like, you know, some people are like, that's my favorite book. We had a Gatsby-themed prom, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah, it was kind of... It, it, we did, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say just about Gatsby, not to interrupt, but the thing that I forgot is that what kind of what got me into Baz is that he likes hip-hop a lot. Oh. And that's something I've always kind of liked about him. For, like, an Australian white guy in his 50s, like, <laughs> Gatsby and Get Down is all about the history of hip-hop, and then Elvis all have a lot of, like modern rap music in them and i think that's the reason why i watched his stuff to begin with because i had kind of heard of it but someone was like yeah jay-z like did the whole soundtrack for gatsby and i was like that's interesting so that's something i've always liked about his stuff too that is really interesting and that guy goes hand in hand with that like big bold style you know like Mm. he uses whatever like whatever like sonically visually you know is going to bring across the feeling that he wants to evoke i feel Mm. like that's what he is more into than like any sort of like consistency you know it's just all about like he wants to hit you with some pretty wild impressions yeah i'd also see moulin rouge when i was younger and you know it it, I think that's a movie that really, like, you know where it's going and it still, like, hits you very hard. Mm. I, f- mm-hmm. I feel like, you know. Yeah, I feel like that is maybe his biggest hit. I don't know. I mean, Gatsby and Romeo plus Juliet still both get talked about a lot. Elvis was a big hit this year, too. But I do think Mulan might be the one that, like, the most people know. I don't know. But this one we're talking about today is, I would say, probably the one the least people know. Wouldn't you say? I would say, but it loomed large over my childhood because my entire family apparently has seen this movie except for me. When I told my mom I watched it, she said, oh, where have you been, like, your entire life? (laughs) Everybody else in the family has, like, (laughs) always loved this movie and has watched it multiple times. And I I don't know. I I missed the boat on this one. (laughs) But, yeah, it's strictly ballroom. Shall you say it? What are the stats released I'm just going to run through them super quick because we'll talk more about his background in the making later. But it was released August 20th, 1992. It's an Australian film. It was released in Australia. came to the United States the next year, February 1993. The first film directed by Baz Luhrmann, written by him, along with his writing partner, Craig Pierce, and Andrew Bovell. We'll talk more about that later. The score is by David Hirschfelder. The Australian composer, Oscar-nominated, also the composer of Aquamarine. Oh my god, the crossover. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about looming large over 
our lives, our podcast. Um, <laughs> this runs one hour and 34 minutes, a tight 94, what we mm-hmm. love most. Mm-hmm. Made for 3 million Australian dollars, which is a little bit under 2 million United States dollars. And went on to gross over 80 million at the box office, 12 of which was from the United States. So big commercial success and big critical success. It's his highest scored movie on Metacritic still with a 72. And at the Australian Film Institute Awards and the BAFTAs, basically the Australian and the British Oscars, respectively, it swept both of them that year. It was a big awards hit the year it came out. Emma, if one of our listeners, as we're mentioning, has not seen Strictly Ballroom, what would you tell them about? All right. It's about a young man growing up in the world of competitive ballroom dancing. He wants to win the Nationals, I believe. Uh, And he's been training his whole life for it. But he also just wants to do his own dance steps. It's not allowed because the president of the whole association sells a dance video on all of these steps that are currently allowed. And of course, if any new steps would be allowed, he'd be out of a job. So through a long, <laughs> a long series of events <laughs> that grow in increasing absurdity, he is kind of like kept from his goal of um, getting to dance his own steps in the nationals. He is paired with a new partner who believes in his dream, but isn't a very good dancer. Um, and he has to kind of, they have to like kind of learn together. And then her family also teaches him something important, which we could get to a little bit later. <laughs> well, this movie also does, speaking of his partner, Fran, this movie does the classic Hollywood trope of like, you have a clearly gorgeous girl and they have like frizzed her hair a little bit and put her in glasses. And everyone is like, oh, she's revolting. Who would ever want to dance with her? The ugliest woman in town. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. She, they do. They do do a little bit of an ugly duckling routine with old Fran in this <laughs> one, and so she has the classic arc of like finding her confidence in herself and taking off her glasses and becoming as beautiful as the rest of the dance team. <laughs> all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, pretty incredible. And then it all comes to a, a shocking conclusion. <laughs> Where there's been an uh, there's been a an uphorded secret in the family of how his father used to be a competition dancer and then was disgraced at the nationals because he had danced his own steps and it almost ruined him and his mother's career and it's this shocking conclusion so he decides he must he must conform and he's gonna do it even though it's killing his soul he's gonna dance with the other girl and like win nationals on you know like on the federation terms right. Then, at the last minute, his father says, no, that's not really what happened. The evil president, Barry Fife, horrible man, has been playing everyone for fools for 40 years. <laughs> he says, we lived in fear. And then it, it's, it snaps him, and he goes, and he gets Fran, and they dance it, and the crowd goes nuts. Even though they tried to turn off the lights on him. Can't turn off the lights on simple old rhythm, baby. That's <laughs> yeah. the moral of this story. That's right. How'd I do? It's great. You did great. The thing about this movie, right, is that it is, it's pretty tropey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shockingly. 
<laughs> you sort of know every beat that's going to happen in this movie after the first 10 minutes. And there is a point in this movie where you also think that everything that's going to happen in this movie is going to happen in the first 30 minutes. And then there are, and then there's like the fake out where he's like, we're not actually in love and everything. We have like an hour of complications basically. But anyway, I was going to say for me, like, even though it is tropey, it really works because of the way Baz shoots it, which we can talk about. But also that like this setup is so ridiculous and it kind of like undercuts everything in a way that really works. Like... The setup that what they're worried about is not that he wants to do anything crazy, but just that he wants to dance a couple different steps still in the same style of dancing. And the whole town is like, like views him as like a national disgrace because he doesn't want to do the exact same steps. And that all of it is based on this VHS we keep coming back to that they're selling for $39 that you can buy to learn the exact steps. Like, after the first 10 minutes, it mostly plays things straight, but it is continually being undercut by how over-the-top and dumb of a premise it is. Oh, for sure. And that's what, for me, makes the, the last 20 minutes of this movie just simply incredible. Especially with the makeup in the flashback sequences. Just, like, the whole style of the flashback yeah. sequences. You're fi- You're like, oh, yeah, none of this is happening in any approximation of the real world whatsoever. <laughs> this is hilarious yeah wait i put the question to you flop or bop bop i love this movie um it was a great first time watch like we said it's pretty quick i think that even though it's his first film and you can tell like that it was shot on film for not a ton of money you know even in the the transfer you can tell it's a movie from 30 years ago but like the way he shoots everything i think that he's so good at showing movement just like showing human bodies moving in ways that are like really exciting and where it feels like the camera is sort of dancing along with them. I was thinking about like the trope of like searching through a crowd, which I think is going to be in like almost Mm -hmm. all of his movies, but it is done to great effect here of like, you're sort of following our hero through the crowd as he's pushing through people trying to find the girl he loves and turning Mm -hmm. all the wrong corners and everything. I don't know. I think a lot of what I love about Baz's movies and what you were saying that it, that he is like a very big feelings director, like that is definitely here on display. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bob for me. How about you? Flop or Bob? I also I also think this is a Bob. One of the things that I really like about this movie that I wasn't sure at first if it was going to pay off, but I was just like, oh, there's a bunch of like weird characters in the background of this movie. <laughs> there's just like the whole world is fully fleshed out of like this absurd premise, like you say, but like the whole world of that absurd premise is completely fleshed out. And all of these different characters are like fully, there doing their thing in just like kind of the side of this movie. But it also all comes together very, very well in the last scene in kind of an unexpected series of ways, which I think is impressive when you can pull it off and reminded me like a big um, ensemble play. And then when I saw in the credits that it was indeed adapted from a stage play, Mm. I was like, oh, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. It feels very theatrical. So with this premise that we're talking about and talking about the theater background, Mm -hmm. my feeling immediately watching the first 15 minutes of this was like, 
someone in art school told Baz that he was not a real artist mm. because he's making big crowd pleasing art. Uh, right. You know what I mean? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> because that is kind of the protagonist thing. Yes, yes, that is. <laughs> People are like, sure, the crowd may love it, but only a true expert could be able to tell that actually it's very bad. Right. <laughs> and I feel like that is perhaps what Baz's theater professors were telling him. Yeah. Or someone at some point was like, no, like, it's not art. It's just making people clap. You know, I feel like he yeah. has a big chip in his shoulder kind of in this movie about that stuff. That's really interesting. That was just my take. And maybe I was projecting a little bit onto it. But that I felt that especially towards the beginning. That that does totally make sense. Yeah, I I do remember thinking that like oh yeah like I'm sure like yeah you want to do your own steps, Baz. <laughs> right. Also at the beginning, it kind of reminded me of a Taika movie. Oh, huh. How so? Similar senses of humor, like the Australian mm-hmm. or New Zealand. It's kind of the same joke of like a very quaint town where like the smallest problems are treated as like the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. But also, like, at the very beginning, they're doing this, like, mockumentary thing, which never comes back around. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you are seeing, like, like someone is interviewing his mom, and she's like, this is the worst thing that could have ever happened to our family about, you know, him doing his own steps. Yeah, reminded me of Taika, and that was also what I was not prepared for. Like, I feel like I was imagining the more conventional, like, romantic version of this movie and I wasn't yeah. expecting that it would be so much of a comedy. Yeah. He's never like the one either cracking jokes or really the butt of jokes in this movie either, which is an interesting sort of thing for a comedy. He's on a very dramatic arc throughout it too. Yeah. The main character. Yeah. He's not in as much of this as a protagonist would normally be. I feel like. Mm-hmm. Like, well, even more so with Fran. Fran kind of disappears from the movie for like 20 minutes leading up to the finale. But like, I feel like it is so rooted in the town and in like the community comedy. It's not like all from his point of view. Yeah. Is this part of the Aussie boom that we have talked about? Like, is part of this movie's popularity as part of the cultural context for this film? Like Mm -hmm. it being in that time period, the, the late 80s to the early 90s when... Americans were obsessed with Australia. Yeah, I mean, I guess this would be coming slightly after that, but very much on the back of that, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, at the time this came out, it was one of the most successful Australian films. Crocodile Dundee comes out in 1986, and that is the most successful Australian film of all time. So this is kind of still picking up the slack from that. The second highest grossing Australian film of all time is Australia. And most of Baz's other films are on this list too. Wow. In terms of how much money they are making in Australia, like films that were made in Australia, how much money they made in Australia. Mm-hmm. Clearly it like took a little bit for it to be distributed in the rest of the world, but I think it was still a big hit when it did mm. there. But this is his only movie that doesn't have like Hollywood leads. He will continue sort of using a lot of Australian bit players and stuff. Even in um, Elvis, it's like the main guy and Tom Hanks. And then like everyone in the background is like just some Australian actor. You don't really know. That's cool. 
But this is the last one that doesn't really have like anyone you have heard of in it. Well, that guy, that one guy is in uh, Romeo plus Juliet um, as Benvolio. Yeah, some of them definitely carry over to future Baz movies. Yeah. What else did you vibe with in this movie? I, I do think just like these crazy sequences of dancing, too, are very, I feel mm-hmm. like more exciting dance sequences than you see in a lot of movies, at least that I have seen. Yeah, I think in the same way that he is skilled at shooting those big crowd shots, he's also very good at capturing that the dance and like the stuff with the feet and that kind of standoff between him and her dad. Mm. All of that is like really compelling. It's interesting because his thing is a lot of quick cuts, but it's not like cutting around the dancing, you know, it is like giving you what you want long takes of the dancers actually doing the dances and like being incredibly Mm -hmm. skilled and sort of moving with them. And then it also has, I don't know, like a lot of quick cuts, just sort of setting the scene. Mm -hmm. And it has like a lot of extreme close-ups and, and like dramatic things. I read that growing up, his biggest inspirations were Italian grand opera and Bollywood movies. Interesting. And that those were like the two things he loved as a kid that influenced his style a lot. That's really exciting. How about you? Uh, other cool parts of, of this that you liked? I mean, I don't want to spend long talking about this, but I feel like we need to talk about the villain, specifically the bizarre degree to which he resembles Donald Trump. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I said this. <laughs> I said he gets added to my list of villains who are Trump ciphers, but this one by accident, by an eerie accident of being 30 years ago. And still, like, a pretty, like, one-to-one, pretty great representation. Just shows you there's nothing new at all under the sun. I mean, Trump was around 30 years ago. He was in his 50s. He was a public figure. He was a public figure. He probably still had a bad tan and a comb-over then as well. General incompetent villain is, like, you know, like that's yeah, been a trope forever. Yeah, yeah. That's not something new that Trump contributed to the culture. Right. But like, it is specifically that this guy like has a tan. He has the same blonde toupee. And there's an incredible yeah. scene towards the end where he gets knocked over and it like half rips off and it's flopping off the back of his head. Which I believe is the exact same fate that befalls the weird little guy in uh, yes. in Jurassic World. <laughs> yes, that is exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, it's very, very fun. We know he's married and keeps cutting to him in bed with young women, strange young women. That is, oh, there's the part where he, oh, you show us the news. Just basically um, feels up one of the dancers. Yeah. About showing them the move. It's horrible. And I like also the twist, which is that you think he's just sort of like standard rich jerk. Uh-huh. And then the twist is like, actually, he's pure evil. <laughs> he's pure evil. He's been playing everyone against each other forever. He turned less against against the dude's dad, and the mm-hmm. mom against the dad made the dad a broken shell of a man. The dad's performance is so good. I mean, we keep cutting to like, he's almost like a Muppet. Like, we keep cutting to weird little segments of him like mumbling and doing strange dances alone by himself. And you just keep being like, what's up with this dude? God, when he finally comes on, when he's like doing the dance, because isn't it all the same actors just in make different makeup? 
when I they think do so. the flashback scene. When they do that scene, I lost it. <laughs> I was just <laughs> uh, talking about Muppets. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. That is yeah. truly insane. Uh, and very theatrical, like very we're theatrical saying, too, too. You know? Yeah, truly great villain twist. Pretty effective. And I love that his it comes to a head with where his parents finally actually dance together at the mm-hmm. end. And it sort of saves everything in that way. Oh, shout out to his younger siblings, too. I like the, that he has two, like, paparazzi younger siblings who are always kind of doing funny things in the background. They save, basically save everything at the very end. Yeah. Which is deeply satisfying. <laughs> Uh, when they lock, when they lock Barry Fife out of the control booth, a, a, a grand moment. Everyone in this is wonderful. Also, genuinely, it is so funny, but like the romance is played pretty straight, and I yeah. think genuinely very like romantic, and at times pretty steamy. Mm-hmm. There's a, a section towards the middle where they're in the space with like all the pink curtains. They're in the dance space and. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just about, it's like a movie about two people, like, learning how to move their bodies in time with each other and, like, slowly falling in love through that. And uh, that's just, like, what like what more do you want from a movie than Barry Fife losing his toupee and two young lovers dancing the time after time, slowly falling in love? Is that, like, a very strange, sad, slow cover of Time After Time or am I making something up? Yeah, because I read that someone on some cast member is the one doing the actual vocals for it. The credit song, too, is some weird cover of I think it's uh, Love is in the Air that's like playing as they all dance together in the end into the credits. That's also like a cover by someone in the cast, I think. Do you think in Australia they listen to American pop songs, but just covered by some Australian artist you've never (laughs) heard of? That would be funny. That's sort of like how there's like the German translations of the Beatles, you know, yeah. <laughs> that you hear every now and again. I think they play some of them in Jojo Rabbit, right? And you're uh, like, yeah, they do. Interesting. Did you see this thing? There was this recently this thing that I have not read, but it looked fascinating about the guys <laughs> who translated Hamilton into German. Oh, no, I haven't even heard of it. Yeah, seems worth checking out. That's all I have to say about it right now. Because it's like, do you still make it rhyme? Like, stuff like that is pretty wild. I don't know. What does German hip-hop sound like? I'm not going to attempt an impression. <laughs> but... Okay. Well, I think that <laughs> brings us safely into behind-the-scenes drama, which Wade has promised us there will be lots of today. Yeah, perhaps you see that I've written a novel here. <laughs> oh. Um. So... Feel free to chime in whenever you want to, Emmett, along the way in the story time. Okay. I love to hear it. What episode is it early on where you do like a 10 minute long log about something in history? <laughs> I'm just remembering that. Uh, uh, I mean, <laughs> if it's just if it's just one of them, we're all lucky. <laughs> I think maybe it's first class. There, It's like really like uninterrupted where you just explain how something works in history, which is great. People need more of that. The year is 1962. The place is Sydney, Australia. The real name is Mark Anthony Lerman. 
Mark Anthony, his mother owns a dress shop and teaches ballroom dancing. His father owns a gas station and a movie theater. Oh my are God. Are we seeing how things are coming together here? Uh-oh. Is this painting a clear picture? Hmm. In high school, he meets Craig Pierce, who is going to go on to be his future writing partner. They're together going to write, I think, all but one of his movies. Uh, in high school, he also gets the nickname Baz, which is after his resemblance to the British children's TV character, Basil Brush. Who's that? I think he's like a puppet fox or something. I'm looking it up. Oh, God. Oh, sweet Lord. That's a horrible thing to be compared to. <laughs> he sort of looks like the animated Robin Hood, but like as a British puppet. Uh, He looks kind of like Rizzo the Rat meets the animated, <laughs> the animated Robin Hood. I'm seeing a VHS here that says Boom Boom. The best of Basil Brush. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. Okay, well, apparently he looks like this guy in high school. And so everyone calls him Baz, and it sticks. He graduates high school in 1980, and he is cast as an actor in this prestige Australian drama, which is called The Winter of Our Dreams. The most famous sort of older Australian actress at the time is Judy Davis, who I believe has won a few Oscars herself. Uh, and he's cast with her in this movie. He uses the money from that to put on theater productions with his friends and to go to college a few years later in 1983 as an acting major at the National Institute of Dramatic Art, which is in Sydney. While he's there, he directs a comedy that is devised with him and several other classmates I think it's like 30 minutes long and it's called Strictly Ballroom and it's loosely based on his life and his friend Keith Bain, who I think was there too. And that's where this all starts, basically. Short devised play in college. That's crazy. It's a hit. After he graduates, he is asked to restage it at the Czechoslovakian Youth Drama Festival, which is where he asks his friend from high school, Craig Pierce, this is the beginning of their like writing partnership. They take the device script and they turn it into like an actual play. And it's a hit at the festival. He wins Best Director, Baz. And then it gets done for real at a real theater, the Wharf Theater in Sydney in 1988. And it's a big hit there. And he gets to put together his own theater company while he's there, which is called Six Years Old. Uh, and a bunch of people work on it, including... Catherine Martin, who is the production designer for the original 88 production for this movie, for all of his future movies, and is going to be his future wife. Whoa. He only got married once. They're still together today. They got married after Romeo plus Juliet, but wow. a longstanding creative partnership, too, between the two of them. Good for them. Look at that. That's the dream. You devise a play. Then you're asked to restage it at the Czechoslovakian Youth Theater Festival. <laughs> and then, boom, you are like straight to like the big theater in Sydney. And then they're like, oh, and by the way, here's a theater company for you. Also, run that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Go get it, Baz. That's incredible. <laughs> well, first of all, I think a lot of the genius of all of his movies is Catherine Martin. Because when you think of his movies, you think of production design, right? Oh, And true. apparently that goes back even to this first production, that it was very 
that her design sensibilities is a huge part of everything too. Well, that makes sense because those costumes are, I mean, absurd and like just like the whole, yeah, the whole feel of it is very specific. Yeah, I think actually most of the budget of this movie legitimately is in the costumes. Yeah. Okay, switching lanes. We're talking about Ted Albert. He's an Australian record producer. His big thing is that he formed and produced for the Easy Beats, who are the Australian version of the Beatles. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure if our listeners know this, but back in the 60s, it was like, a matter of world security that the Beatles had caused a sexual revolution and they were from Britain. Every nation was like, we cannot let our young women be attracted to British musicians. (laughs) So basically every country like had an emergency meeting and formed their own version of the Beatles. That's what the monkeys are. There are American Beatles. And in Australia, they had the easy beats Wait, are you saying that the monkeys were formed by the CIA in an effort <laughs> to to stop the overpowering sexual force of British musicians? Yes. This is one oh, of yeah. your most... Okay, usually I'm the one saying unhinged things. What? What is this? Is this true? This, well, I'm saying it's true. It's also so funny because, like, you look at the Beatles, it's like... They're four sort of regular British guys in suits with long hair, you know, like they're in their 20s. Like Paul is cute. Absolutely. Paul is a big cutie. But you're like, this is the thing that (laughs) caused women around the world to um, liberate themselves. (laughs) Like, it's wild. But I guess they just had long hair and that was like not a thing yet, basically. Tune into our Elvis (laughs) movie for more discussion on this. For more nuanced discussion <laughs> of the sexual liberation of the 1960s, see our Elvis episode, where I'm sure we get into all of that in a very nuanced and extremely tasteful way. And I'm Wade. Okay, this guy, famous. Famous, famous, the king of Australia for having brought the easy beats <laughs> to Australia. Ted Albert. He sees this um, 1988 production of Strictly Ballroom. He loves it. Of his own volition, totally hasn't talked to anyone involved with the production. Of his own volition, he makes a film studio just to make a movie out of Strictly Ballroom. Just one of these guys, you know, filthy rich filthy rich and old doesn't have anything to prove he uses his money to set up a film studio then he goes to baz and he says can we make it into a movie and baz says you can make it into a movie if i can direct it and that's how it all starts lots of trouble along the way albert hires the australian playwright andrew bovel we mentioned him as one of the co-writers um he's famous for the play when the rain stops falling he gets him to rewrite the play script and Bovel's take is turning it into like a realistic drama and he adds all this stuff about like a union dispute into it and <laughs> past season he's like, no, that's not what I would like to do. And basically eventually gets Albert to let him and Craig Pierce again rewrite it together, which is the final shooting script. So he's writing, he's directing, 
they cast as the leads Paul Mercurio, who's the lead male dancer in the Sydney Dance Company. I think he was for a decade. He's an incredibly talented dancer in real life, although in ballet primarily, rather than ballroom. But they cast a dancer who had never acted before, and they cast the woman who played Fran in the 1988 stage show. Tara Morris is who plays her in the movie as well. Now they're almost there, but they don't have any stars. <laughs> they don't have a proven director. They don't have a proven screenwriter. They can't get funding anywhere. And in the middle of all this, Ted Albert unexpectedly dies from a heart attack in 1990. And at this point, they're basically just like, well, that's it. This is this is not going to happen. Cut to Ted Albert's wife, Popsy. <laughs> Popsy Albert. <laughs> God bless the Australians. <laughs> I cannot believe this. <laughs> Popsy is like, it's the thing that Teddy wanted most, or whatever. <laughs> and, um, and she gives $1 million to the movie <laughs> to get it made. <laughs> okay, yes. that's awesome. Go Popsy. Popsy comes through at the 11th hour. And I think I read that she also like basically called her rich friends and secured the rest of the funding. Oh, whoa. Because like they were trying to get other studios were involved. And I think they got a couple, but it was again, like the budget keeps going down. It's like, oh, you, you want these people as the lead. The budget is going down. You're having Baz as the director. The budget is going down. People are not mm-hmm. here for it, but they get the money from Popsy. They film the movie. Right after they filmed the movie, Pat Thompson, the actress who plays Scott's mother, also dies unexpectedly from cancer, which just sort of pops up. She never got to see the film premiere. Uh, Really sad stuff. And she's excellent in the movie, too. Big part of the comedy. Now, they've got a finished movie, and they can't find everyone who's going to distribute it. He's going around showing it to all the distributors in Australia Apparently, the people are literally walking out of the movie halfway through, being like, there's no way. We're not going to put this into theaters. He eventually gets it into the Cannes Film Festival, famous film festival still today, in May 1992. Baz goes over there with the movie. It screens at midnight, out of competition. Like, it is barely there at the festival. And yet, it is the big hit. Everyone who sees it there loves it. It's the breakout hit of the festival. It gets, just like every other movie, the absurd 20-minute-long standing ovation. Then it gets a distributor. Then it gets released in Australia and Britain, and it is a huge box office success. Nice. And the soundtrack is a huge hit, too. After all of this, basically, you know, it didn't connect with any of the people who had money, but it hugely connects with the viewing population of Australia and Britain. Go Baz. How does all of that strike you, Emmett? A realistic depiction of getting anything made ever. Well, it does. And it's also like, you know, it's like the art that he's creating. It's like its process imitating itself or something. It's like, oh, like he's trying to do this like crazy weird thing. They want him to do some other thing. Make it a union drama. Make it... (laughs) You know, like whatever other thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it is crowd pleasing. And then he goes on to do more crowd pleasing stuff for the rest of his career. And people are still loving it. Yep. 
Yeah. Two other small things. First, I want to say this is the first of three films in what is known as his Red Curtain Trilogy. This movie starts with the red theater curtains being pulled open to see the movie. Mm. And the idea is that this loose trilogy is about his love for theater. And each movie is based around a different aspect. This movie is about dancing. Romeo plus Juliet is about dialogue. And Moulin Rouge is about song. Mm. And so that's what these these movies are supposedly a spiritual trilogy. I'm going to say that this film also had a like cultural impact, inspired many things. It got turned into a stage musical in 2015. Wow. Uh, it was the inspiration for the British TV show Strictly Come Dancing and for the American remake of that show Dancing with the Stars. Ever heard of it? Unbelievable. In middle age, Paul Mercurio, who's the lead in this movie, was a judge, I think, for like a decade, basically, on Dancing wow. with the Stars. That's really awesome. And there's a whole section on Wikipedia that's just like all the TV episodes that are parodies of this movie, basically. But shout out to the Sweet Life of Zack and Cody episode, Loosely Ballroom, which I guess is <laughs> their parody of this movie. Incredible. Well, thank you, Fred. Now, I have a question for you. Who would you say... Out of all of this wild array of people, who is your MVP OTP? Uh, and I think we're just going to take Scott and Fran off the table. Okay. Well, I love Fran, but if we're taking her off the table, a lot of other MVPs, but the one I've got to give it to is John Hannon playing Ken Railings, the like drunk <laughs> middle-aged dancing star. who Scott's first dance partner leaves him to dance with instead. This is like you were saying, I mean, he's just like one of the characters in the background of this movie. And what I really love is that he never really comes to the foreground in like the second act, which a lot of it takes place at this one dance competition. Like there's this whole plot point, which is that he's really drunk and kind of like messing up his performance because of that and then you see all these shots of him just like drunk and wandering around the rest of the competition but like it never goes anywhere (laughs) like it doesn't lead to like him like falling down well no but the thing is that they're faking the competition and he's gonna win and he doesn't even know it but they're like trying to do that and so he just doesn't even Mm. care so he's drinking yeah Getting sloshed. Sorted stuff, but the performance is excellent. (laughs) It is. Emmett, who's your MVP? Ooh, 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 ooh. I'm going to have to give it to Wes, who I think is incredible. As the Mm. mom's, like, dance partner, they're, like, training school partners, basically, who has this wonderful arc, and he has also been betrayed by Barry Fife and gets his revenge on him in the end as well. And mm-hmm. you know, that that part is pretty pretty cool too. I and I just think he's very funny and like he's all of them in the dance company are playing that very hilarious, just like outraged shock at everything that Scott's doing, which is always just so much fun to watch people be aghast and like pearl clutching over rules that are completely absurd. Wait, do you have any final thoughts on Well, I have a final thought about that character. Mm-hmm. Who I think is really interesting. I, you could see a version of the movie where that character is the bad guy, right? But instead he's sort of <laughs> like 
the middle manager, basically. <laughs> He's like, yeah. But I just wanted to say briefly, I don't have any grand thoughts about this, but I want to say that this is a comedy from 1992. Obviously, as we know, a lot of comedies from up until 2014 have a lot of like gay panic, a lot of homophobia mm-hmm. baked into them, you know? Yeah. And a lot of them very casually have homophobic slurs. Like, not mm-hmm. even treated as, you know, anything harmful. And in this movie, there is a homophobic slur, which is probably something you'd not get in a movie in 2022. But it comes at the very end, and it's done by the evil Trump character to that character that you're talking about. Yeah. And treated as kind of like a horrific, harmful moment. Yeah. And the last straw for less as well. So, I don't know. I mean, obviously, you're always... I'm always a little bit taken aback when it's in anything, but I thought that actually I think Baz probably has like a tremendous amount of like understanding of queer culture and and coming from like a theater dance background, you know? And so I think that being in this movie about small town Australian life is like kind of cool. I also just love the relationship between Les and the mom and the dad. As, like, this strange partnership of people with, like, Les and the mom, like, running the shop together and, like, doing everything together and being, like, life partners, basically. But the dad, like, being this hanger-on who's the dad of the kids also. It's a very funny dynamic at play there. How did you feel about Fran's family and that whole subplot? Huh. I'm genuinely not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just wondering... I imagine this to be a trope in dance movies. I'm not sure because I haven't seen a lot of mm-hmm. dance movies. But like when the white boy is taught rhythm by some people of some other different <laughs> ethnicity than uh-huh. him, I feel like it's kind of an obligatory scene in a dance movie. <laughs> right? Like um, it's uh-huh. like it's going it's going to be there. Um is is like kind of my thought. That being said, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> is that inherently problematic that that is a thing that is in these movies? Yes, probably so. Is it well pulled off in this movie also, given the trope? I think like many tropes in this movie, this one is also pulled off well. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think that scene with her family is like a fun and like nice scene in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Or do you think it suffers from being that? What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? My main thought was just that it doesn't completely feel like cultural tourism. Mm, that, mm-hmm. And that's the best I can say for it. Like, it doesn't feel like, you know, this movie is all about Latin dancing. It's about, <laughs> like, uh, true. middle-aged Australian people doing Latin dances. Well, what I like about it, too, is the first time you see Fran's family, it seems like kind of a rough area she like literally like walks through a trash can to get to her house and it looks like mm-hmm. her dad is like up late playing cards and drinking and yelling at her and you're like oh this is gonna be like the mary jane watson thing we've seen right right yeah and then we come back and they're like oh no they're actually just like a loving family from a different culture who are also dance royalty and are like secretly the best yes. dancers in the world. <laughs> yes, they also happen to be the best dancers ever. What? Yes. Which I guess is also a trope in itself, but 
the the real reason I don't want you dancing with my daughter is not because I don't like you or dancing. It's because your dancing does not meet my standards. <laughs> yes. Exactly. I mean, that's pretty awesome. It's a pretty it's a pretty great moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it feels like those characters have like a little bit of agency, you know, are not just like tropes, basically. So that is mostly my feeling. Obviously, we're going to see Baz explore like other cultures a lot in all of these movies. And we'll see how he does it along the way. But I think that this is net neutral, at least, you know, it didn't feel actively terrible (laughs) to me while I was watching it. So that's what I have to say. Well, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I don't think I have any other final thoughts other than, you know, great debut. Great debut. Oh, and I love, I just wrote this down when it uh, cuts to a newspaper shot, when the word is out that maybe he's going to do his own steps, and it cuts to a local newspaper that says, new steps rumored, (laughs) a huge headline. And then then there's the news, and it says, no new steps. (laughs) Yes. Great stuff. Any other final thoughts, Emmett? No, we're just going to move it on over to the quiz section here. Here's what's happening with the quiz. Okay. (laughs) Okay. You're going to try and guess 10 wonderful dance movies. And, you know, we're going to go from there. Okay. When the transition is being made from silent films to talkies, everyone has trouble adapting. The protagonists of this film have been cast repeatedly as a romantic couple, but when their latest film is remade into a musical, only one of them has the voice for the new singing part. This is Singing in the Rain. That is correct. An excellent dance movie. This next movie, uh, the life of the 11-year-old protagonist's who is a coal miner's son in Northern England is forever changed one day when he stumbles upon a ballet class during his weekly boxing lesson. Before long, he finds himself in dance demonstrating the kind of raw talent seldom seen by the class's exalt, ex, uh, exacting instructor. Um, this isn't Newsies, is it? No, it's not. Is this a, a stage musical as well? It is also a stage musical. But I believe the the musical came afterwards. If I'm okay, mm-hmm. uh, what's what sort of time frame? What year? Well, it's set in a very specific time frame, but I also think it is. I think it was made in the early two thousands. Oh, okay. The film is from was made in two thousand. It is the kid's name is the name of the movie, and it's not Oliver. No. Is it that sort of vibe? Is it like an old, like I'm picturing like poor Dickensian sort of. Yes, yes, but it's it's a little bit more modern than that. I think it's from the 60s, but it is like poor Dickensian kid growing up on the streets, you know. Wait, like... is it Billy Elliot? Yes, of course. Yeah. Nice. Okay. All right. This next film stars John Travolta. Uh, he doesn't have much going for him during the weekdays. He still lives at home and works as a paint store clerk in his Brooklyn, New York neighborhood. (laughs) But he lives for the weekends when he and his friends go to the local disco and dance the night away. But one night, one weekend night in particular? Yes, which weekend night might that be in particular? (laughs) Um, this Sunday night flu? Um, Friday night hypothermia? 
Or is it perhaps that Saturday Night Fever, baby? Oh, it's burning on Saturday Night Fever. Woo. <laughs> okay. This film, uh, a newcomer from Chicago, is in shock when he discovers that the small Midwestern town he now calls home <laughs> has made dancing, both dancing and rock music, illegal. Uh, as he struggles to fit in, he faces an uphill battle to change things. I'm just letting you keep going with this. <laughs> with the help of his new friend and defiant teen, Ariel Moore, he might loosen up this conservative town. Uh, this is, of course, Footloose. Footloose. Incredible. Incredible. Okay. Footloose is one of those movies like um, Romancing the Stone that we were talking about, where there is like actually a lot of like sexual content and nudity in that movie that every parent forgets when they show it to their kid when they're eight years old. It seems that it seems that you're doing too well, too well at this indeed. So we're going to try and do something a little bit more difficult here. In this film, a 2004 American dance drama written and directed by Chris Stokes, who was also the business manager of the performers who were the film's main characters. Interesting. Okay, wait, that's actually, <laughs> you're never going to guess that, that one. It's, it's what you would say to someone after you gave them a subpoena by surprise you've been served yeah you got served is the name of the film (laughs) um all right this next film also stars john travolta experience the friendships romances and adventures of a group of high school kids in the 1950s it's the most successful movie musical of all time oh this this is greece that is true when a wholesome exchange student and a leather-clad Danny have a summer romance. But will it cross-click mm-hmm. lines? Truly, just one of the best. Isn't uh, Olivia Newton-John Australian as well? I'm pretty sure. Is she? Oh, it's all all part of the Australian Australian fever. Australian Saturday night fever. No, it's not. Okay. Ooh, here's a fun one. Young American dancer Susie Banyan arrives in 1970s Berlin to audition for the world-renowned Helena Marcus Dance Company. When she vaults to the role of lead dancer, the woman she replaces breaks down and accuses the company's female directors of witchcraft. Meanwhile, an inquisitive psychotherapist and a member of the troupe uncover dark and sinister secrets as they probe the depths of the studio's hidden underground chambers. Is this Suspiria? It is. Okay. Suspiria. And finally, this is a movie that almost won an Oscar. Like, really almost won an Oscar. <laughs> okay. okay. That's the only hint I'm going to give you here for. <laughs> it came like, I mean, some might say that it did win the Oscar, and then that, that, that Oscar had to be Wait. taken away from it <laughs> and given to the film that actually won. Oh, okay. Is this La La Land? It is indeed La La Land. Wade, you're a genius. You're amazing. You're wonderful. And you have won the game today. It's not strictly ballroom here, but it is strictly dance room whenever Wade is around. Truly the king of dance. (laughs) I'm honored. Okay, I forgot. I still also have to tell you. How do you feel about dancing, (laughs) Not great. 
<laughs> Not great. Any thoughts on dancing in general? I love uh, ochre coat traditional square dancing, and that's about it. Hmm. In 41 weeks, it will be the pink cotton candy bubblegum world of Greta Gerwig's Barbie. We look forward to it. Um, but next up, they're um, no less beautiful, but they're a lot more sad. It is Romeo plus Juliet <laughs> rather than Barbie plus Ken. We'll be seeing what they're getting up to. Please don't spoil this one for me, Wade. <laughs> I have no idea how it ends. You know that in high school, our teacher, Mrs. Shreblo, legitimately spoiled how Hamlet ends for me. <laughs> what, by telling you that they died? Yes, literally just saying everyone dies. Spoilers for Hamlet. <laughs> Spoilers for Hamlet. Spoilers for anything that Shakespeare wrote where there's a character's name in it. It's not looking good for that character is what I'm saying. True. They should stay Frost's dead. <laughs> gotcha. Thought I was going to make a joke and I didn't. Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Wade Lawrence Holloman and me, Emmett Temple. Wade also edits and mixes the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week. 